How's everybody doing? All right. Um, you know, I didn't do this during the first service, but just felt prompted to do so now. Um, could we just take a moment to pray? Uh, you, you may wonder, uh, it is, well, one, it's, it's incredibly moving to hear all the ways that God would allow our church to actually, like, be a blessing to our world. Like, did you hear those causes, the things that he's allowing our church here in Queens, New York, to be a part of what he's doing throughout the world. It's absolutely humbling. It's such a privilege. But I love the audacity of just the way the kingdom of God is structured in that how does all this happen? By you and I doing a simple thing, talking to Jesus and allowing him to speak to us. That simple, that simple act can change the world where Jesus speaks to people like you and I and directs us. And so I just got this sense that some of us perhaps... Uh, you, you keep telling yourself, I'm going to pray. I, I got to remember to pray. I got to remember to pray. Uh, extending hope, yes, I got to remember to pray. Um, and perhaps you're just complicating it. Um, and uh, it doesn't take more than just a moment in the presence of God to just pause your heart and say, Jesus, what are you calling us to do? And, and, and just to listen to whatever he might say. And so I want to invite us just to still our hearts just for a moment. You've heard the causes. You've heard the invitation. Um, it's a simple invitation to talk to Jesus about your money and do whatever he tells you to do. If he tells you to do nothing, that's what obedience looks like for you, and that's what you should do. If he stretches your faith in these next few moments and you get a number that potentially scares you and says, how do I do that? Um, sit with that. Pray through it um, and see how the Lord meets you in that. But whatever he does, whatever he tells us to do, the words of John in John chapter 2, uh, the wedding feast of Cana, where Mary told the servants, whatever he says, do it. That's our posture. And so let's just pause and just listen for a few moments. Lord Jesus, we come to you and we ask that you would speak to us, lead us. Our money is not our own. Our lives are not our own. Would you lead us, guide us, speak to us? In Jesus' name. encourage you this week, um, if you sense the Lord speak to you during these brief moments, sit with that, discern it, let it uh, really weigh it out. And if you can't shake it uh, in a couple of days and you just feel like, man, this is what I feel peace around. I feel God uh, is really leading me toward that. I encourage you to do whatever he's telling you to do and partake of the joy of this season, which is not only us being able to give toward these amazing causes, but also more importantly and lasting beyond extending hope is us as a community growing in this simple posture of saying, Jesus, our lives are yours and you speak to us, you lead us. We don't make our own decisions because we don't own anything. You own it all, guide us, shape us. If we could grow in that during this season, then the potential for us to be life transforming agents of his love in the world exponentially grows. 
And so with that, we are going to conclude today our sermon series, Marks of a Surrendered Life, as we look at a passage in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verse 35 to 45. It says this, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Would you join me in prayer? Lord Jesus, we thank you that we can come before your word with expectant hearts. We pray you would speak to us, give us soft, attentive hearts to hear your voice. We thank you, Father, for the love and the grace that you always meet us with. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are here wanting to glorify Jesus and point our hearts to him and help us to see him in a transformative way. And so we pray you'd be with us in these next few moments. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, the title of this series um, is Marks of a Surrendered Life. And the idea behind it is this wrestling that all of us are engaged with. And the wrestling that we're engaged with is around the question of, are we truly living a surrendered life? Is the trajectory of our lives one in which that as every day and year passes, we can look back and say, I have consistently been seeking to render my life, surrender it to the glory of God. Uh, it's the most proper, adequate response to what Jesus has done. Jesus has come and actually refers to his work in this verse as one who did not come to be served, but to serve, and he gave his life as a ransom for many. Have you, have you ever thought about that language? Jesus describes his saving of us as an act of freeing us from captivity. Have you ever seen a movie or seen a real-life sequence where people are held hostage and a ransom is demanded? See, Jesus describes our lives apart from him not as lives that are marked by freedom and autonomy and whatever we want to do, we do it, and we have no one to answer. He actually describes our life outside of following him as people who are held hostage. That, that the freedom that our world tells us we have is a mirage. It's, it's not true. Because Jesus says, 
What I have come is to free you, to ransom you out of this captivity. And how does he do so? He does so by saying, I didn't come to serve, but to serve. I didn't, rather, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. And so we've been wrestling with this idea of how do we know if we're truly living a surrendered life? And so we looked at a few key aspects of our lives to say, if these aspects of our lives are actually surrendered to God, then as a whole, we can honestly say we're at least heading in the right direction. If you're ever wondering, if you're ever like asking, am I really responding to the Lordship of Jesus? Am I really living in sync with his invitation for me to be a follower of Jesus? If you don't have evidence of that in these areas of our life, then the scriptures say that we should examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith or not. And so what have we looked at? We looked at the idea of treasure, the idea of money, that you and I are not owners of our money, but we're stewards. And one of the aspects of living a surrendered life is that we see the marks of the lordship of Jesus over our finances, over our, the way we spend our money, the way we relate to our money um, and it goes beyond just giving, but it also goes toward the posture of our hearts. Jesus said very plainly, you cannot serve God and money. What in, like, incredible language that Jesus is describing our relationship with money, that money doesn't just want you to spend it or, or to be, money actually wants you to serve it, to live for it, to can't live without it. And yet Jesus offers us a different path. We also looked at the concept of time, that as people who are living a surrendered life, we should see evidence of, evidences of that with respect to how we relate to our time, how we use our time. And last week, we looked at the concept of talent, how you and I as people who are living a surrendered life, we should see evidences of that. Jesus showing up in our trades, in our professions, in the way we use our gifts and our talents. And today, despite my best efforts, I do not have a sermon that begins with the letter T. And so the alliteration ended last week, and I tragically admit that. I tried. I was trying to force something, but it just would have been awkward. Today, we're going to talk about the final mark of a surrendered life, and that is living a life of service. Living a life of service. And the nerds in this room are thinking, I could find a T word. Just give me, wow, I could feel, I could feel the energy. But focus, focus. Don't get distracted. In this passage, we, it's, it's a remarkable moment. You got to, like, think of this sequence. Two of the 12 disciples that are brothers come to Jesus, and this is like a blank check moment. They're asking Jesus, whatever, they tell him, whatever we ask you, we want you to do it. Like, think about that moment. Like, if you had the opportunity to ask God for anything, this is their moment. Because what did Jesus say? He says, tell me what you want me to do for you. Could you imagine? Like, the hairs on your neck stand up like, I get to ask the creator of the universe for anything. He did not say, wait, wait, what are you going to ask me? He said, tell me what you're going to ask me before. He actually tells him, what do you want me to do? Imagine the excitement. Imagine what's going through their mind. And then they reveal what they want. They didn't ask for a lot of things that you would imagine or assume people who had an audience with Jesus would ask. What did they ask for? They asked 
if they could be seated at his left and his right hand in eternity. That as Jesus is seated on his eternal throne, they asked that they could be to his left hand and to his right hand. And if you're wondering, I don't know, what, what's, what's the big deal here? What's happening? I'm not understanding. Why would they ask that? You actually get a really good insight at, in, into this moment by the offense that the other ten disciples take. It says the other ten became indignant toward them. And now when you realize, oh, they, whatever they are asking for is offensive to the other disciples, it gives you a clearer sense of what exactly they're asking for and why this would be offensive. And then we get an even clearer picture when Jesus explains to them how it will be different with us, his followers, than the way it is in the world. So what's happening here? They're asking for the two the rarest seats in the universe. How many kept track with all the buzz about like the Eras tour with Taylor Swift? Uh, my daughter's 14. I was up to here hearing about it. It was a buzz in her neighborhood. All the kids, yeah, uh, just like <laughs> done. I have my opinions on Taylor Swift, but I don't want to uh, offend any Swifties um, in, in the room. Look, wow, people would be like, yeah, keep that to yourself. Okay, got it. But if you, if you kept track, some of those seats were selling for insane amounts of money. Seats that you could buy the next concert. Probably still expensive, but they're not once-in-a-lifetime seats. You can go to the next city. Like people that were bummed that they couldn't go to New York, they'd be like, yo, Indiana's an option. You know, like they're, 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 you could go and find these seats elsewhere or if you're patient enough and if she's alive long enough the world will endure another tour no I'm joking and so I kid I kid these are not once in a lifetime just like precious seats they're they're replicable the seats that these two disciples were asking for one of a kind there are no other like them and the level of honor and authority that these seats hold are unlike anything else. What they were asking for is that they would be granted a level of authority, honor, distinction, prestige, above everyone else for all time. That's an ask. And Jesus in his kindness says, you don't know what you're asking for. How often in prayer is that God's response to us? Like, God, if I could just have this and have that. He's like, you don't know what you're asking for. You think that's going to solve. You think that's going to heal. You think that's going to fill the hole. But you don't know what you're asking for. And then he describes to them the fundamental issue with what they were asking for. Why this was not a great thing to ask for. Because he tells them, he says... The Gentiles, and when he refers to the Gentiles, he's describing a reality that they would be very familiar with. He's describing what life was like under Roman occupation. This is what they grew up with, where non-Jews, the Roman Empire, exercise authority. And he said, you know that those that are in authority 
exercise it over you. They have control, power over you. In essence, they make you serve them. They make you acknowledge their greatness. And to live under the thumb of their authority, he says, it shall not be like this among you. And so what he's correcting at this moment is that they wanted to have distinction. They wanted to have authority. They wanted to have recognition, but they wanted it in the means that the world says to go get it. They wanted authority, distinction, power at the expense of others. They wanted power to serve themselves. And this was at the heart of why this was so offensive to the other disciples, but also why Jesus had to correct it and say, this is not how it's going to be among you, my followers. Because he says, among us, this is how it'll be. If you want to be great, you have to be last. If you want to be first, you have to decide to serve all. This was counter and absolutely contrary to the way the world says you and I should grasp for greatness, for power, for influence, for recognition. But before we get on the bandwagon of beating up these two disciples and join the other ten and be like, how dare they? How could they do that? What's wrong with them? How, how egotistical? Actually, if we're honest, don't we have a similar heart cry to those two disciples? I actually really appreciate their honesty. Because they cut through all the noise and they said something in this request, however broken it was, that honestly screams the reality of all of our hearts, which is we long to be seen, to be noticed. We yearn to feel special and distinct. We don't want to be forgotten. You know, one of the reasons why that movie Toy Story resonated so much with adults and it became such a blockbuster is because it actually explores some really profound themes that we all wrestle with. Do you remember in the opening scenes, Woody says this line, and he says, who's going to miss me when I'm gone? The rest of the movie is all about that. This idea of when I'm gone, who is going to miss me? And the disciples are wrestling with this idea of their legacy. Will they be remembered? Will they be seen? And don't we all feel that at some level. It's why we work as hard as we do. It's why we choose the paths that we choose. We're all yearning to experience some degree of distinction and recognition, and we want to feel special and have an influence in the world. We all yearn for that. There's nothing wrong with that cry, but ultimately, unless Jesus interjects, we will fulfill that cry the way we have always fulfilled that cry as, as a human race. We will fulfill that need at the expense of others. So we will seek to be great at someone else's expense. We'll step on people. We'll use them. We'll override them. We'll push them out. We'll compete whether it's ethical or unethical, we'll push and shove to make sure we are not forgotten. And to this, Jesus steps in and course corrects it. See, in here, we're, we come across what we feel in the air as just being part of our, the, our culture where there's a definition of greatness and di a distinction that is in the air 
And yet Jesus says, this is not how it is in the kingdom. This is not how it will be among you. Because he lets us know to be great in the kingdom means to serve. It means to advance others and to use your power to bless others, not at the expense of what's good for them. See, power is to be used in the service of others. And what we realize that what Jesus is talking about is not just some niche Christian idea. Actually, what he's describing has the potential to transform the world. And actually, it's what's lacking in our world. Because anytime you see injustice, corruption, any type of moments where people are being used and abused, what you're seeing is the contrary to Jesus' definition of greatness in full display. You're seeing people being used at the expense uh, for, for other people's glory, for other people's benefits. You're seeing this dog-eat-dog, survival-of-the-fittest kind of mentality, and we both can't win, so you're definitely not going to win because I need to win. And you we're seeing that at an epic scale, not just interpersonally. We're seeing it across cities, countries. It's all before us. What Jesus is describing actually has the power to transform our lives but the world as we know it but here is the problem as clear as his definition of greatness as clear as the path that he sets before us this is what greatness is serving others putting others before you the reality is that our hearts fundamentally resist that at our core, even though we want that to be our reality, it's not our default. We have to be transformed to actually want that, to live that out. If left to ourselves, we will take a page from history and just replay it over and over again. We will use each other. We will use our power, our influence, not to bless others, but to benefit ourselves. So it's a beautiful vision that Jesus puts before us, but we're confined by our own selves, that we seek our own, that we, want, that we put ourselves first. That's our default, that we're always looking out for number one. And I know there's some incredibly kind, generous people in this room, and you're saying, man, that doesn't feel like you're describing me. If I'm not describing you, it's because you've allowed Jesus to transform you. And he's making you into the vision that he's describing. But let's be clear. Apart from Jesus transforming us, we have a clear picture of who we will be. We will seek our own, benefit ourselves at the expense of others. And so here's the problem. We are in the way of what Jesus has laid out for us. But here's the good news to that problem. Jesus says, in verse 43 to 45, he says, But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The good news of Jesus's love and grace is that when you and I believe in what he has done for us, 
It has the power to transform our self-seeking hearts to become people who serve others and put others even before ourselves. Why? Because in order for you to be saved by Jesus, you have to experience the humiliation of Jesus to serve us. Do you know how, like, cringy that is to think that the God of the universe, the creator of all things, humbled himself to become a servant, was willing to live among and in the midst of our broken world, to smell the smells, to hear the violence and, and see the brokenness all around us, to live in the midst of all of that in order to rescue us. How many know the true sign of love of a fellow New Yorker? There's levels to this. You have people that love you, but I'm going to describe the ultimate level. First sign of love is someone who's actually willing to meet with you and meet up. Because we've got a lot of promises, right? Yo, let's get together, let's get together, right? Let's get together. You could do that for five years. You know that, right? Like, we've been, we've been getting together for five years. But the, one of the first signs of love, hey, we actually got together. This person really loves me. That's, that's a good level. Some of you were like, hmm, some people in my life don't love me yet. Okay. So I'm not trying to, you know, do that to you. But maybe this will be helpful. But also check yourself because maybe, oh, man, I've been promising so-and-so for five years. First sign of love, level. You know what the deepest one is? Someone who shows up to help you move. <laughs> That's a person you keep around. You prioritize that relationship. Someone who's willing to go up four flights of stairs and show up on the day of your move when you didn't even finish packing, you know who you are. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm almost done. No, you're not, you knew. <laughs> This is going to happen. They're willing to, like, like, lug a refrigerator and pivot, pivot, you know, like, that is love. The God of the universe humbled himself below that, came, like, to, to love us to that degree, to show up at that level of love. To, it's incomprehensible. To be saved by Jesus means that you have accepted the humiliating, humbling, transforming truth that God was willing to become a servant for you. And when that like punctures your heart, the humility that forms enables us to serve others. Until that punctures our hearts, we can serve, but we're probably going to serve with some hidden agendas. We're probably going to serve for our own purposes, for our own glory. But when you and I allow Jesus to pierce that self-seeking posture of our hearts, we become empowered to serve others as only he can empower. I don't know where I heard this. Um, it's too good for me to think I created this, but... This idea of that sin is undeterred self-focus. Think about that. When you have self-focus and it's undeterred, it's uninterrupted, 
sin is going to fester. And yet, how did Jesus stop that self-focus by him not focusing on himself? He broke that. And now he says, I put you before me to save you, to redeem you. And when we believe in that and are transformed by that, we go from people that demand to be served to becoming people that glory in serving others. This is what Jesus alone can do. One of the evidences that the cross is transforming us is that we see in our lives an increasing posture to serve others. We want to put others before ourselves. We don't seek to be number one. We don't try to force our agenda. We're not always trying to one-up and gain ascendancy. We're willing to lay down our lives. We're willing to take second place or even last place. We don't need to be number one. When you start seeing that attitude grow in you where you don't need the glory, you don't seek the glory for yourselves. I remember this, this homegirl I had, she always had the funniest expression. She's like, why does everybody want to be the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral? I'm like, wow, that's intense. But what she, but what she was trying to get at is like, we're all, we all want attention and glory. It was intense. She, she was a funny girl. Why do we always want that? And yet Jesus alone frees us from that tendency to seek our own glory. It says, actually, I want you to be blessed. I want you to be taken care of. I'm here to minister to you. Yeah, I have needs. I'm putting those aside. I'm showing up for you. This is what Jesus makes possible. Because in Christ, we see God making himself lowly for us, which empowers us to become lowly for others. This is what we don't see in our world, what we desperately need to see in our world, and what Jesus uniquely empowers us to be in our world. Where in a world where everybody's seeking their own, trying to amass glory for themselves, we get to show up and say, it's not about us. We're not here for us. We're here for you. We're here to serve you. Hey, but what's your agenda? We really have no agenda. You are our agenda. When we show up in that way, the world doesn't know what to do. It, it, it's different. It's distinct, and it smells of the fragrance of Jesus. It's like, this, this is different. This is otherworldly, because we don't get this kind of energy from no one else. But the people of God, when we are at our best, allowing Jesus to transform us, we show up into spaces where others would seek to make it about themselves, and we show up into those spaces and say, we're here for you. This is what Jesus desires to create in us. Philippians chapter 2, verse 2 to 11, takes this idea even deeper. It says this, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. How do we do that? That's such a tall order. 
if left to ourselves, this is impossible to fulfill. But here comes God saving us again. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, in verse 3 and 4, we, it, they describe the extent that Jesus wants to transform our hearts in order to empower us to serve. Jesus' goal is incredibly high. So if, if you and I are here and we're saying, man, this is a great sermon for so-and-so, because I'm good. I really serve. I'm at a really good place. Consider his goal. And when you read this, when you hear this goal, none of us are fully here. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. This is the goal. And we are on a journey to see this become an increasing reality in our lives. More and more, day after day, year after year, verse 3 and 4 should become a greater reality in our lives. Where we learn as Jesus instructs us and transforms us to not do things from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility to count others more significant than ourselves. With each passing day and each passing year, we learn to not look only to our own interests, but to the interests of others as the Holy Spirit continues to empower us to do so. How many have ever seen the show Pimple Popper? It's a gross show. But you can't look away. For, for, <laughs> Maritza said, yeah, you can. That's your weakness, not mine. There was a good two-week period. My kids hated me. Because if I was in front of the TV, I was watching it. And they would walk by. This is disgusting. I was like, she's doing God's work. Leave that woman alone. <laughs> Celebrate that woman. Because she's just popping. Oh, man. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go research it. It's after Thanksgiving. You're good. Uh, you got a couple weeks to our next big meal. And so you can shake it out of your system. And so it's a gross image. But work with me. Every single day, the Holy Spirit squeezing out our selfish ambition every single day he's squeezing out our conceit every single day he's squeezing out of us the things that make us put ourselves before others how good of the Holy Spirit to do that for us It's an incredible image. Let that carry you for the rest of your life. Where you wake up every day and you say, Holy Spirit, squeeze the stuff out of me. It's only gross if you think you don't have it. No, I'm joking. So, if you think you don't need the Holy Spirit to do that for you. Uh, 
Every single day, if we're honest, our default is to think of ourselves, to put ourselves before others. And yet what Jesus has come to do and the Holy Spirit empowers us to do is to empty that out, that we might be the servants that Jesus makes possible for us to be. He transforms us as the Holy Spirit applies the good news of Jesus to our hearts over and over and over again. I remember years ago, there was this restaurant owner. Um, I'm going to say something controversial. One of the best Greek restaurants in the city is not in Astoria. Come at me. It's in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. Yes. It's this place called Spartan Cafe, 68th and 8th Avenue. I don't know where this guy gets his tomatoes, but they're like the freshest, most beautiful tomatoes. Just go there for the Greek salad and for the entertainment because the family that owns the place are hysterical. Been going there for over 20 years. Whenever I'm in the area, I try to drop in. I remember a conversation with the owner, the wife uh, of this couple. They both own the restaurant and their kids worked in the restaurant. How she shared um, a struggle she had. She was like, you know, it's difficult to be in the service industry because people look down at you. Pe like, people don't treat you with respect. They'll think it's okay to talk at you and to be rude and to not dignify your humanity. And like, she was like, my, my daughters have gone to NYU. You know, like, I, we're educated people. Like, we, there's other things we could do, and yet we choose to do this, and we're not often met with the dignity that we deserve. I think about that story when I think about the fact that one of the things that can be hard for us to serve the way Jesus calls us to is that on the other end of serving, sometimes we're met with disrespect. Sometimes people take advantage of us. Sometimes they don't see us in our full humanity. They diminish us. And so serving can feel very vulnerable. However, this is again how Jesus absolutely transforms us. If the God of the universe humbled himself to serve me, then when I serve you, my value is never questioned because I don't derive my value by how you treat me. I derive my value by the king of the universe bowing down to serve me in order to save me. If I have that much value in his eyes, you can mistreat me, but my value is not diminished at all. Jesus protects us from the vulnerability that we might feel that keeps us from serving by letting us know your value is never diminished. It's always held constant in my eyes because I laid my life down for you. And so when you and I lay our lives down serving, putting others before us, we can do so with confidence that there's never a question of are we less than. We are never less than when we serve others because the God of the universe laid his life down to serve us, to free us. As we bring this to a close, you know, one of the things that I think is unique and special about like the role of a local church like ours is that it gets to be like this laboratory where together we grow and we learn things that don't just benefit our life together, but actually equip us to go into the world and to be the people that Jesus has called us to be. 
And so when we pray for each other and we, uh, the gifts of the Holy Spirit are active in operation in our community, that's not just for our life together in these four walls. That equips us to go outward and to be the presence of Jesus and power in demonstration in the world. But also when we serve. There's something powerful and transformative about when you and I respond to the invitation of Jesus to serve within our community that equips us to go out into the world as servants, not as people that are demanding to be served. And, and so in this series, is we've invited you to consider multiple things to pray and to process with God about living a surrendered life with regard to your treasure or your time or your talent. Today is no different. I want to invite us to pray and to ask God what it might look like for us to grow in serving the way he calls us to. And one way that we could do that, that has ramifications for outside of our community, not just within, is for you and I to prayerfully consider being a part of one of our serving teams. The powerful, transformative ripple effects that that has in your workplace, in your relationships, as you're a neighbor, as you're running your business, as you're showing up in all the spaces in your life, is just too immense to calculate. There's something that happens when we learn in a context like this to put others before ourselves, to say I'm part of something bigger, to say I would rather do this, but my commitment to serve calls me to live above that. Yeah, I'd rather sleep in. Yeah, I'd rather, uh, you know, be away every single weekend. The Catskills are calling me. Oh, you know, why is it on Sunday is the only day you get an itch to hike? You know, why does it have to happen? And yet... Every week we say, no, we prioritize coming together to serve, to use our gifts. It, one, it's one of the laboratories, the training spaces that Jesus uses to change our hearts the way he desires so that when we live out in the world, we can live out as the people that he calls us to be. People who do not come to be served, but to serve others. And so... Here's what I would love for you to consider. I would love for you to consider prayerfully joining one of our Sunday serving teams. We have so many opportunities for each of you to use your gifts for the betterment of our community, but also to be in a space where by using your gifts in that context, it trains you, it resets you to live the way Jesus calls us to. You know, every Sunday morning, I got to be honest, when I'm driving into church, there's these moments when I'm driving, I'm passing all these New Yorkers on the highway and the streets, and the thought occurs to me, so many of these folks are not going to end up in a gathering like this, of the millions of people that live in our city. So many are doing so many other things on Sunday. And sometimes it can be a little enviable, where I would drive by people and they're just fishing off the bay. Like, man, what a life. That looks amazing. Or during the summer where I live by the beach, I'm driving away from the water. They're walking toward it with their coolers. Have a great day. (laughs) But before I can go into a self-pity, this reality hits me. That when I come into this space together with us, I recenter myself on the reality that Jesus described our lives are not our own. 
that we are called to serve. That greatness in the kingdom means that you choose to be last and that you want to be a servant to all. And so when we invite you to consider being part of one of our Sunday serving teams, yes, you fulfill a vital function and you, you make our community grow and your gifts matter and they contribute to the overall goodness and we carry the weight of it. There's nothing like coming into this space and saying, I'm not just a consumer, but I am a co-creator of this community. I share in the ownership of what it means to create an environment where people encounter God. That's unbelievably like transformative for us, but beyond the, like, the utility of that and the benefit that we experience in our community, by you saying yes to serving in these ways, you give Jesus an opportunity to continuously reset your heart away from ourselves and outwardly. So whether it's serving with hope justice or do for one or serving as a greeter, serving as someone who's setting up or tearing down or our AV team or our worship team or our kids, our tots, our youth, it's, whether it's uh, hosting a small group or saying, I want an apprentice to lead a small group one day. What, whatever the capacity that Jesus is calling you to serve, the invitation is far greater than just the immediate result. It's a journey of ongoing communion with Jesus where he keeps resetting our hearts and saying, if you want to be great, you must be a servant. If you want distinction, you have to go into anonymity and to bow and to humble. If you want to be first, be last. This is what Jesus invites us into. So as we close, as the worship team comes forward and we prepare to respond in prayer and in worship, I want to encourage you in these next few moments as the prayer team is in the back, if you would like prayer for anything, the words that were shared earlier or, or perhaps something you're wrestling with, whatever it is, in these next few moments as we respond in prayer and worship, you can slip out of your seat and go to the back and receive prayer for anything you might need. With that, could I invite us to stand? And as we prepare to respond in prayer, if this week as you pray and you're feeling an, uh, a stirring to serve, we'd love to hear from you. All you would have to do is email Pastor Denise or myself, and we would love to have that conversation and steer you in the right direction around serving. And so if that's on your heart, we would love to hear from you and guide you in that direction. But at this moment, before we go, I would love for us to take some time and bring before God whatever relationship, whatever dynamic exists in our lives that we know Jesus is calling us to show up as a servant and yet we're honestly struggling to do that. We feel guarded. We feel defensive. We don't feel safe. And so we're wrestling with that. What would it look like to bring that before God and say, God, in my relationship with my coworkers, with my boss, with my neighbors, with my spouse, with my best friend, whoever it might be, you see my heart, you call me to serve, I feel guarded, would you speak to me, would you meet me? Would you bring that before God in these next few moments and ask him by the power of his spirit 
to break through in your heart. Jesus, we come to you now in desperate need of your transforming love. Meet us as only you can. Let's worship him.